It's Jerry from No Crumbs Left, back from break, sitting across from my dear friend Dana Hurt, who was on one of our initial episodes, right, Dana? When was that? I think it was September 2018. Back in the back in the day, Terry. Back in the day. We still don't know what we're doing. You know, we still have that thing that my mom and I'm sure my mom didn't invent it, but I'm going to give her credit, which is uh we don't have all the answers. We're just trying to figure out what the questions are. It's funny because I I say this and then recently I was looking through something that my mom had written me before she died and and it was this is what she said to me. But I think I put it really deep. And then I've said it, and then I realized, oh, my God, it's my mom's material. So, again, thank you, Patty Turner, the gift that keeps on giving. Um, how you doing? I'm great. No complaints. You know, it's been a fantastic break. I managed to have all three kids home for at least a part of the break. So feeling good and replenished and ready to start the year. How does that work? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, we're both mothers of grown children, you know, mostly living out of the house. And how is that getting together over the break? And uh, let's just talk a little bit about how that is. I think by the end, we all love each other. But by the end, everyone's running out the door. Love you, Mom. <laughs> Goodbye. You know. Well, I will say that because my kids are so infrequently all together, it is really a love fest. But it's remarkable how quickly everybody reverts to the roles they play. Right. I mean, instantly, you know, one is the one who doesn't help out in the kitchen and the other two are the ones who help cook and clean. And one, you know, puts together the one end table and, you know, now thinks it's heroic and he's done this amazing feat and he should be thanked for the rest of the time he's home. You know, it's, it's, a, it's so funny how quickly they just revert to who they are and who they've always been in, within that family dynamic. But I will say it is a laugh after a laugh after a laugh. These are funny kids. And when they're together, the house is a happy, funny place. It's so much fun. We had a couple weeks together, too. And where we go, we, we end up with a couple of lodges. And we do, you know, the modern family. So it's Lucy and her girlfriend. It's, you know, Patrick comes. Um, my former husband, my my children's father comes with his partner, and then we have uh, some family friends, and we actually have three different lodges, you know. And Patrick was like, I really want to stay in your lodge. And I was like, okay, this is what it means to stay up in my lodge. We get up in the morning, and we don't ever leave a mess for my for, for our mother. It didn't work so well. Uh, but I did say to my kids, um, on the trip, here's one thing I want you to know. Uh, I may be treating for the trip. I may be, you know, buying the out-to-dinners. I may be doing cooking. I will not be doing one dish. Not one. So, anyways. Yeah, well, the modern family is definitely our house, too, because we learned early on that once the kids left the house, if you have to share every time they're back, you get half that time. So, for us, it was the same thing. It was me and my boyfriend and his daughter and my three kids and my ex-husband and his wife, and we all were together, and it was game night, and it was glass-blowing, and it was just... Lots of fun family time. It's a lot of fun. And I think if people can learn to sort of, and I know this is not even necessarily what we're going to talk about today, but if you can sort of learn to let go of the resentment of the past and embrace, you know, what modern family looks like and you can enjoy each other. And, you know, it's always like I'm so grateful to Stephen because I have these beautiful children that I love so much. And, you know, there's no one that loves them in the same way that I do but Stephen, and that we share that journey together, you know, and for us, it's been, we've been apart 12 years. So, you know, a lot of water under the bridge and, uh, you know, we're like, we're like sideways siblings almost, right? right. No, you I know? completely agree with you. And I think that part of the embracing of the modern family is understanding not only that connection and the fact that you're going to share these kids forever, but the benefit of all of that love 
when I think about the role that these new significant others play in the role of our children, more people to love them. It's just better for them. Right, right. Roy has a couple of, of daughters. And I think, you know, one thing that's worked well is that I've never tried to be their mother. They have a mother, you know, they adore her. And so what I, you know, what I am is just, you know, their 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 father's partner and, you know, definitely friend and, and you know, I appreciate having more, but I've never tried to be their mother or need to be their mother. And I think that's worked well with Roy and my kids. He has, his, you know, kids. So my kids are, you know, friends and, uh, you know, we're lucky for that. So let's talk a little bit about co-parenting. So, I mean, co-parenting, why is it important whether folks are... Uh, you know, married, separated, divorced, or, you know, living together. And many, I know, many married people want to work out a way that they can go off and have separate residences and uh, and separate weekends or whatever. The greatest way to save a marriage, you know, is, I love, I have a friend who's married and that she and her husband live separately, and you know, come together when they want. I, they have a happy marriage, by the way. But in any case, let's talk about co-parenting. And you're a parenting expert. Who are you, Dana, and what do you do? <laughs> well, let me back up to that. So I am Dana Hurt, and I founded Dana Hurt Parenting, which is really a, a parent coaching practice. So I have clients who are looking to just do the work of parenting more effectively, feel more empowered, feel more in control. It's a tough journey for a lot of people. It was, um, it's not always intuitive how to parent. And so I help parents feel just better about the job, you know, simply put. But I found that a lot of what I do is work around co-parenting because at the end of the day, um, it's not it's not so easy to always be aligned around the parenting decisions that you're making, and it's important that you are. I say to parents over and over again, you don't have to be aligned about everything. You don't have to agree about everything, but you do need to find yourselves together around the big things. So whether I'm teaching a class um, at the midwifery um, practice at Northwestern or whether I'm teaching teen moms or whether I'm working in my private practice in my, in my, with my own um, clients, I find that co-parenting is coming up over and over and over again. How do we do it effectively? How do we align our values so that we can make decisions together um, for the best thing for our kids? Yeah, I think it's brilliant. So how do we do it? Well, the first thing is, I think, understanding that you have to get connected around your core values. When I talk about intentional parenting, I talk a lot about what your values are. Because if you share values, then decisions that you make are going to be aligned with those values and then, of course, aligned with your partner. So that's the first thing. What are your values and do you agree? Many, many people, when they start thinking about getting married, they go through, if it's with their rabbi or with their priest, they go through... Um, kind of counseling to see if you're going to be good partners. And they ask questions about, do you want kids? And how do you view money? And um, all those kinds of things you have to think about before you get married. But before you have kids, there is no such program. No one sits down and says to you, what are your thoughts about education? And what are your thoughts about punishment and discipline and chores? And what do you think the role of the grandparent should be? And those things are not discussed, but those things often create huge problems for parents because they don't agree. Um, so whether it's I want to send my kid to religious school and, well, I want to send my kid to public school. Well, I went to religious school. Well, I went to public school. I turned out great. Did you turn out great? All of those things start to come up. So I try to help parents who haven't done that work to sit down and say, what do we what do we want? What are we looking for at the end with our children? And if you can figure out kind of the portrait of the 18-year-old, it's easier then to back out of that to say, what do we need to do to get them there? So give me some examples. Okay, so 
a lot of parents um, that, I'm, that are struggling right now that are in my practice are struggling with issues of discipline. That seems to be a really big issue, particularly as kids are flexing a muscle, whether it's the toddler muscle of independence or the teenage muscle. And so parents, when they're not aligned, the kids split. And then parents come to me and they say, we need to fix this. You know, this is a problem. My kids, it's a problem with my kid. And what I say is there's nothing wrong with the kid. This isn't a broken child. This is a broken system. Children split because that is developmentally appropriate for them to do. So if we are giving them an opportunity to see where the wedges are, they're going to drive into that wedge and create friction and conflict between the parents because they're going to be sensitive to those those moments where we're not aligned. So what I say to the parents is, what are you, what are the, what are the conflict points? So a parent says to me, my three-year-old, um, you know, is banging the car against the wall. Bang, bang, bang. And it drives me crazy and I can't stand it. And my husband always says, oh, it's not a big deal. Let him be, let him be, let him be. And so the parents are arguing over the truck against banging against the wall. And the kid is going on and on and on with the banging against the wall. And so I want to find out what, why is that the issue? What's that about? And first you have to find out why does the person who cares about the wall care about the wall? Is it because this is their first home and they're really, they feel like the room is precious? Is it because they're sensitive to loud noises? Figure out what it is and then have the other partner consider what is why that's an issue for their partner and then find a way to say, what do we care about in this house? If that's something that my wife cares about, I may not care, but I'm going to be sensitive to her experience and we're going to say to our son, we're not going to bang against the wall and we're going to intervene when they are and make sure they have adequate attention and distractions. That's not something they continue to engage with. I love this. Give us some more examples of, you know, sort of conflicts that you've seen and how you've helped people to resolve them. Well, I had a client, um, it was a couple, and they were separated, and they were really struggling to co-parent effectively because they had two different houses and two different sets of rules. And what was happening was the kids would ask one parent a question, get an answer they didn't like, and immediately go to the other parent and get a different answer. And the problem was is that it was easy to drive that wedge because there was really difficult communication between the two parties because they were in, it was a new divorce and there was still a lot of animosity and feelings of betrayal and anger and resentment. And so when they came and sat with me, we talked about how do we handle your feelings of betrayal and upset and everything else separately? How is that your work as individuals? But then how can we co-parent effectively? And it, all it took was they started having a weekly phone conversation, set aside 15 minutes to make sure they were talking about everything that was going on with the kids so that they could find common ground. So then when the kid says, can I blah, 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 it wasn't yes or no. It was, have you already spoken about this with mom or dad? Yes. And what was their answer? Or I'm going to go back and talk to mom or dad about this and make sure that we agree. And having those 15 minutes together every week just to focus on the kids, not the status of money, not anything else, just the kids, allowed them to connect in a way that the kids couldn't split. And when the kids started hearing the parents say, I spoke to daddy or I spoke to mommy, it was actually really comforting for the kids because they understood that there was that communication, there was that security, and it really resolved the problem for this family. 
Fantastic. But what do you do about, you know, certainly I have friends that have gone through divorce where, you know, there is a split and let's say the husband no longer even speaks to the wife, but you still have children that you need to parent. How do you even, you know, help someone navigate that when the other parent won't help? Well, I always say you can only control what you can control. So in a perfect situation, parents can be in their own therapy or with their own friends or whoever they need to do to bash the spouse, right? They can sit with their feelings of resentment and hostility, whatever it is, and and deal with that separately. But hopefully they can do that outside, and then when they're focused with on the kids, they can do the right thing by the kids. Obviously, if you have a partner who refuses to do that, you can't control that. What you can control is what you do. You can control the grace with which you function and operate. So you don't need to badmouth a partner just because the partner is badmouthing you. I am a big believer in the kids are watching, listening, and learning, and they will remember and see how you acted. So if you have a partner that refuses to speak to you and is just full of anger and resentment, then you simply with the kids say, this is what we're doing in this house. These are my rules. These are my expectations. Well, daddy says, guys, daddy and I don't agree on this. We're not able to come to an agreement about this, but that doesn't change what's happening in my house. These are the rules. The reason these are the rules is because this is what I'm trying to accomplish. These are my values, and you keep living your best self and doing what's right for your children, and you can't worry about what you can't control. Yeah, I like that. So so if someone says, well, what are my values? I mean, in, in a way, we all know. But if someone just goes like, well, what are my values? How do we sort of establish that? Again, I think of, I what I try to get my clients to think about is what do you care about? Yes. And often the easiest way to do that is, one, think about other people's children, right? Because sometimes it's hard to think about our own. Right. You think about other people's children. I do this exercise with the expectant parent group all the time. Like, we all have nieces and nephews and the kid we see at the grocery store or our friend's kids. What do we like? What do we not like? You know, well, that child, that 16-year-old was so rude to their parent. Okay, so you value politeness. Okay, you like value yes. respect. So it's an opportunity to think about the kids, the other kids you see in the world and what you like and what you don't like. Because at the end, you're building a kid, right? Right. And the goal is in 18 years, they go and the marriage is intact and we're staying and we're all good and we've launched these kids, right? right. Successful parenting means launchable kids. If you do a good job, you, they, they leave, right? As sad as it is and hard as it is, that's the goal. So you first have to think about what do you want that 18-year-old to look like? What does that 18-year-old need to have to be successful in the world? And then that helps you think about what your values are. For me, I thought about it, about the term resilient. I wanted resilient kids. Yeah, I love that. Well, what does it mean to be resilient? How do you teach resilience? Yeah, how do you? Well, I can tell you one way you don't do it, and that's doing everything for your child. And parents often confuse good parenting with doing everything. I was always there. I helped them do everything. The helicopter well, mother. Right, which right. I'm sure I was right. and I still and we, might be. Right. We all, <laughs> listen, there's a part of all of us that we want. We want to protect our kids. We want to take care of them. We want to do for them. But if you do too much, then they don't know how to do for themselves. You know, I always go back to that um Someone said to me, how come E.E. E. Cummings gets to write in all lowercase? I think I asked that question of an English teacher. My English teacher said, because they know the rules. If you know the rules of when you need to capitalize, then you can decide if you're going to use all lowercase. They weren't writing in all lowercase because they didn't understand right, capitalization. Like like so it's kind of like if you know your kid can make their own lunch, but you love and relish the opportunity to be cook for them when they're home, 
then cook for them. But if they don't know how to scramble an egg, you've got a problem. Right, right. Right. So how else? I mean, how do we build resilient kids? Because I think, you know, it's that I loved that book, The Blessing of, of the Skin Knee, yes. and I can't think of what her name was. Um, in, incredible book. But how, you know, specifically, how do we do that? Because I think everybody wants to. I mean, I remember, you know, and I may have said this before, but I remember when, when Patrick was in fourth grade and the teacher was like, your kids should be getting on the bus and going places. Well, my kids were 100% not doing that. It was a shock to me that this was an expectation. I think I was a person that really gave my kids a lot of independence. So I was like, my gosh, if I'm so far away from this, imagine other people. But it really, it it was a pivotal moment for me where it was like, oh yeah, you know what? You can go to the Cubs game with a friend. You know, it's time to learn the train. Your mother doesn't know, but you're, you know, but your uncle will teach you or the neighbor. Um, You know, that kind of thing where you really, where it's just like, okay, this is the time to do that. Well, it starts early. Right. I mean, I I always joke that Oliver, who's my oldest, was my first test of that because um, I remember him learning to tie his shoes. And I'll be honest, I was much better at tying his shoes than he was. Yeah. Right? I was excellent at tying shoes. And so when you're trying to get out of the house, it's hard to sit and wait for a little toddler to tie their shoes when you've got to go somewhere. It's frustrating, and it's, um, and it's, and it's challenging. And I want to just to bend over, tie them, pick them up, let's go, let's go, let's go. But part of building resilience is letting him learn to tie his shoes. And that meant building in extra time in the morning to make sure he had time to navigate that task. And that's a baby example of a, with a young person. But those are the first steps of building res- resilience. When you can't do it, that you try again. No one swoops in and does it for you, despite the fact that I was more competent. Because when they're little... Right, because you are really... You're one of the most competent people I know. But, we're I better at, but when they're little, we're better at everything right. than they are. Right. And that and that stays for a while. Eventually, they're better at things than we are. But when they're little, we're better at everything. So does that mean we should be doing it? Brushing their teeth, flossing their teeth, you know, um, cutting up their food. There's a point at which they need to learn some of those skills, and we need to give them an opportunity to practice those skills, even when it's frustrating to watch. Yeah, I remember there was a point where it's feeding Patrick. I don't know how old he was. I mean, he was very little, but my sister was like, he needs to be feeding himself now. And it was like, you know, she, she, he was ahead of me, two kids. And I was like, he does, you know. Uh, and right. sometimes and it's those things you really learn from other, you know, other parents. And listen, sometimes kids say, you know, you hear over and over the toddler, I do it myself. Yes. You know, right. that is a toddler, one of the toddler famous expressions, you know, no, and I'll do it myself. That's what they know the best. But some kids are happy to be fed. You know, I say now, I think if someone put a fork full of food in front of my mouth, I'd be sure I'll eat that. I don't even have to lift my arm. I mean, so some kids are happy to not do it. They're happy to have a parent continue to dress them when they're three and four and five. And when I hear that, I always say to parents, stop. Yes. Yeah. Stop. They need to learn to do this for themselves. And it doesn't mean that you abandon them. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden you go from dressing them to saying, I expect to see you in the kitchen in 20 minutes in an outfit. There's steps to helping them navigate that alone. But the goal is. And what would the steps be? Well, the first thing that you do is you talk with them. You say, like, you know, it's think it's time we're going to try, you know, for you to get dressed by yourself. What do you think you want to wear today? And don't say open the closet, you know, and show them everything. Take out a blue shirt and a red shirt and say, which shirt do you think you want to wear today? Blue shirt. Okay, let's let's see how we start putting that on. And if they just stare at you, then you start breaking it down into steps. Do we put the head on, you know, the head through the head hole? Do we put an arm in? You know, start figuring out what works. I mean, did you ever watch a little kid put a coat on when they lay it down and then they put their arms and they flip it over their 
their heads, that's a parent teaching independence, teaching resilience. How can we break this down in a way that you can do it yourself? Yeah, and I think that's always the thing. There is that thing about loving the kids. I mean, of course, for me, I really loved making my kids lunches. So they could not have taken that away from me because that's something that I, you know, it's like putting magic in their day. Um, But what about this idea? There's always this idea your kid forgets their lunch or something. Do you, are you the helicopter mom and bring it in? I mean, are you going to let your kids go hungry? Like, how, do, how does one deal with that? Well, first of all, I always think it's hilarious when people are like, you'll let your kids go hungry. Like, certainly, I'm, I'm not going to speak for everybody, but your kids would have been fine without yeah, lunch one right. day. And certainly my kids would have been fine without lunch one day. I think that it depends on the kid and the situation. So my youngest child never forgot anything ever. He was one of those kids that just tracked his belongings, knew where things were. He's getting ready for a band concert and realizes he didn't bring his tuxedo to school. That sounds ridiculous, but that's what they yes. wore to band. And he texts me, I forgot my tuxedo. Never forgot a thing. You better believe I grabbed that tuxedo, drove yes. it down to the school parking lot, unlocked the car with the second key, threw it in the back seat, texted back, it's in your car, you're done. Uh, because it's an unusual situation. Yes. My oldest who until executive functioning really came in, which for him was closer to 16, who would forget his head if it hadn't been attached, I couldn't do that. It wouldn't have been appropriate because I would have been rescuing him every day. So the first time a lunch is forgotten, you can help out and drop it off. The second time, natural consequences. If you're hungry, you're probably going to do a better job of remembering lunch the next time. Right, right. So you just have have to do it, and you have to know that love looks like sometimes, you know, the blessing of the skin knee. Right. And, right. and the truth is, is that I think for parents, sometimes you have to look at what are the real consequences. We get so afraid of what we think will happen. You know, I have parents who sit in front of me and say they're not doing their homework and we're fighting all the time about getting their homework done. And I say to them, let's, let's put the homework aside for a second. What are you afraid of? Mm-hmm. And if you say, what are you afraid of? Then they're like, I'm afraid they won't do their homework and they'll fail. I'm afraid they won't graduate from high school, that they won't get into the best college, that they'll be a failure in life. You know, it gets very dark and scary when you start going down that path. And when I bring them back to, you have a 15-year-old who's not doing their homework. Let's not jump all the way to them being a failure and, you know, living in your basement forever. Like, what? let's figure out right now. Because ultimately, you can't care more than your kid does yes, when they're that yes, age. Right. So then what kinds of structures can we put into place? What's the school doing? If they're really not doing their homework, there should be consequences at school. Let's have the school be the one in the position of putting those consequences into place and not have it always be the parent dynamic, the parent conflict with the child. Well, like what would the school do? Be, yeah, tell me about well, that. Well, I mean, for the big issue I had with a uh, client recently was their child wasn't getting up in the morning and getting to school. And every, oh, I had that senior year with Patrick senior, right. for and a so, year. Right. Yeah. I'm not getting to school. I'm not getting to, they're not getting to school. They're not getting to school. The parents are in my office, you know, really upset. How do we get them out of the door? They're not going to school. So I said, what's the consequence at school for lateness? Well, they like him. He's a good kid. So they kind of let it slide. The first period teachers doesn't really worry about what time they get in. How's he doing in first period? He's got a B plus. So he's coming late every day. Still managing a B plus in that class. So that's already like, I'm not really concerned, right? right? The kids right. doing fine in that class. But I said, if you have a cons- issue with how getting them out of the house and there's no consequence at school, they're not motivated, right? right? If your boss doesn't care if you show up at, t- at 9 or 10, people are going to come closer to 10 yeah, over time because they're going to learn that. So this kid has learned that this first period teacher doesn't care. So he's slow to get to school, but he's not 
failing the class. There's no consequence. I've also had clients where the school says he has detention, but then they don't enforce detention. So then it's not the fight with the kid. Then it's a call to the assistant principal or the dean or whoever the right appropriate person is at your school to say, listen, we have an issue. My son's not going to school or my daughter's not going to school on time. They're consistently late. They've earned detention. And there's no detention. There's no expectation that detention is served. Like, you guys either need to go give up on detention or you need to enforce Enforce detention. And this needs to be an issue between you and my kid, not between me and my kid. And then often the schools will realize that they're not doing it and they'll want to do it and they will do it. Or they'll say, you know, we don't really enforce detention, in which case you'll say, then, you know, please stop giving it to my son because you're giving a mixed message. And hopefully there can be an effective partnership with the school. Often I find that schools are so afraid of parents reacting. I think that's very true. They tend to do less because parents aren't – there's so much adversarial tension between schools and parents as opposed to a partnership. Yeah. And if we go in with our, you know, fists up, ready to fight, the school feels feels that and they tend – it tends to be a really problematic relationship. If we can go in and say, listen, we're both working toward the common goal, which is to get this kid to be great, let's find a way to partnership. You know, let's find a way to build a partnership. How can I – how can I be helpful to you? This is something I really need you to do to be helpful to me. I think it's so important. We were speaking with uh, Molly uh, a podcast ago or a couple ago just about sort of how to really partner, you know, in a collaboration. And I have always felt not only with suppliers, but I have felt like the school and the pediatrician, you know, there's no world, you know, that I would be getting in an argument. Now, if, if I felt like there was something really off, but I'm saying I considered myself a partner with the pediatrician and a partner with the school. So it's like, how do we work collaboratively? Recently, my um, children's uh, a pediatrician, she retired and they sent a note saying, we're not going to be in Chicago anymore. She's just going to be semi-retired, going to be, you know, only in Northbrook. I got the note. Now my son's 26. My daughter's 22. I started crying. I started crying because it was like, oh, my God, if she had not been there, you know, at at this office because I love her so much. Anyways, I sent her a book and I sent her a thank you note. Um, But I I just think partnering, you know, is so important and really collaborating in such a positive way and not make it be it's your fault or it's my fault. But it's like, how are we going to, you know team together. Right. To and that, that. That, that's about how we relate to the school. That's how we relate to the pediatrician. That's how we relate to our partners. Yes. But we tend to have, I think there's an instinct that we're going to fight. And I think that if we can take the position that this, we're all on the same page, we're all headed to the same place. And I can be a fierce advocate. And trust me, I was for all three of my kids throughout their you schooling. I was a fierce advocate, but I was never an adversary. I was always looking at the school as my partner. I was always looking at their doctors as my partner. And today I look to their dad as my partner. Yeah, isn't that nice? And we're going to share the rest of their life, God willing, and hopefully a gazillion grandchildren. If you're children, if you're listening, take note, but not tomorrow. Right. (laughs) I love that. So I know that you do this in your private practice. I know that you teach classes. Tell us a little bit, like, where are you helping people learn more about this? Well, specifically around co-parenting, I think that there's, I'm doing it in a lot of different places. The first is with expectant parents, because again, I feel like there's just not enough attention paid to what do you do once the baby's born. Everyone in that co- in that expectant parents class is spending a lot of time working on their, um, their kind of 
delivery. They're talking a lot about how to get the baby out, what's their birth plan, but there's not a lot of attention to what happens after that child is out. And so there, I really want parents to start thinking about being aligned around their values, thinking about what they care about, and again, looking at that portrait of the 18-year-old. What do we want to have at 18? And then figuring out how to make sure that they are making decisions to get there every step of the way. And with that blueprint in mind, you can then address each each parenting decision as you deal with it. With my teen moms, I'm helping them really think about co-parenting because they've got really um, often complex situations. Very few are actually living with the father of their children, but they're still co-parenting with that partner. Um, In addition, they're often living with their parents. So they've got these grandparents who are in the house who are playing the role often of another mom or another dad. And so that's a complicated thing because, you know, these young moms say to me, well, my mom thinks she knows best. And I always say to them, you have to remind your mom that she did a good job with you. And now it's your turn. And um, and so but that's a that's a tricky situation for these young for these young parents in particular. And it's also tricky because when they're not living with the father and the father is often not even um, uh, a husband and there's issues around what is the role in that case of that person? Are they really playing a a paternal role? How often do they see their child? Um, Those are issues that um, these parents are struggling with. I had a young woman last week say to me, you know, I'm working so hard to potty train my three-year-old, and then he goes and spends a day with his dad and comes home in a diaper. So I said to her, why do you think that happens? And she said, oh, I know why it happens. He's lazy. And I said, how often is your son with his dad? And she said, you know, two days a week. And I said, your son's going to figure it out. You've got five days a week. You're going to be the one that's influencing the potty training. There may be a little slip on that weekend, but he is going to be in big boy underwear. He is not going to be in diapers when he, you know, is in first grade or when he gets his driver's license or when he goes to college. But at this point, you're not going to be able to influence the father of your child. So why create that conflict? Like you have to focus on what you can control. And at the end of the day, you want your children's father, you know, for people who are divorced and there's all this, you know, acrimonious kind of feelings. You really want your children to love their dad and you want their dad to absolutely be involved so it's important to know that. You and you know, want them to get whatever different. they can. This Absolutely. is a situation where she'll say, you know, he's not 50 percent. And I'll say, you know, but whatever he can give, if that's 10 percent, if that's 50, 15 percent, whatever he's giving is value to your child. And I said to me, the things you fight about are the things around safety. Right. If you were sending your son to his father for the weekend, and there were issues of being in, a car, in the car without a car seat, or there were issues of him then leaving your son with a stranger to you um, and going out and doing something else. Those are issues of safety, and then you need to intervene, and you need to be aggressive in defending your child. But whether he's in a diaper or a pull-up for part of a day, that to me isn't worth fighting about, and it detracts from the opportunity for your son to have some positive time with his father. Yeah, I mean, you've got you to choose your battles, and you can't fight about everything. So, you know, what do you say to co-parents? I mean, how do you do it and how do you also allow for differences? First of all, you absolutely can do it. Everyone's capable of co-parenting. I mean, I am a product of divorce. I'm divorced myself. I know you've, um, you're doing it um, after divorce. Everyone can co-parent. The most important thing is understanding what it is you're trying to accomplish with your kids. If you can focus on the kids and not focus on what you like or dislike about the person you're co-parenting with, um, 
everybody can get around the goals with the kids and it can be an effective way to kind of prioritize. I think that first you have to understand what your values are and make sure that they're aligned, again, as I said, around the big things. They don't need to be aligned around everything. They need to be aligned about the big things. And then you have to lead with compassion. You are not the same person. Your skills are different than your partner. What you're capable of doing is different than your partner. You may be better at certain things than your partner is, and that's okay. And then you can figure out what to do based on those things. People who live together will often divide chores or responsibilities around their skill sets. You know, one parent seems much, much better at getting a kid up in the morning because they're earlier to rise. They have more energy in the morning. They don't find it as difficult and challenging to manage sleepy children. So let them be the one that gets the kids up in the morning. If someone else does much better at bath time because they don't have as much trouble setting the limits and you know, making sure that bath time is short enough to then have a book and go to bed, then let that person do it. It's okay to divide and conquer around where your skills lie. But if you start with a place of compassion. It's not that you're not good enough or you're not a good enough dad or a good enough mom or you're not doing it as well as I do it, but to recognize that your partner has something to offer and um, and then negotiate around how we're going to get this done and how we're going to do this effectively together. Yeah, and my thing is always, and how can we have some fun doing it? You know, to the right. extent in life that there can be more joy or you can find a way to open it or access it because it's all can be very, very heavy, you know, so it's like, and fun. also humor. I mean, at the end of the day, yes. you know, humor, you know, breaks up a lot. When you're in the midst of something and you can, you know, insert humor, it tends to, it just tends to quiet a situation, whether it's an argument with a partner or an argument with a, a child or just chaos in the house. If something can just be funny, it kind of takes a break and then you can reset and then go back at whatever the issue is. Absolutely. I love this. I love that we were considering talking about one thing or another. We only got to the other. So another time, will you come back and we'll talk about adulting? Well, adulting is very much on people's yeah. mind today. And I have lots of thoughts on that. But today, my focus was co-parenting. Yeah. I know you guys can do it. I have confidence in you. And if you know, if you want a co-parenting reboot, let's find time to do that. Yeah. Where do people find you? Um, you can follow me on my blog, which is um, through my website, uh, DanaHurtParenting.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at ParentWClarity um, and reach out reach out. And I, how it all really came to be was that we, I was going through divorce. I think you were too. We got set up from our mutual friend, Michelle Porter, who said, I think you guys will really like each other. And I, when I met you, I just, I really thought you were like one of the best parents that I'd ever met. I, I just think you have great judgment. And when I'm going through something, you're a person that I would call and say, I don't know what to do about this. So anyways, you made a business out of it and I love it. Um, you guys, Terry at No Crumbs Left signing off with Dana. We sure had fun. And uh, come find me over at No Crumbs Left on Instagram, on the blog, or on Facebook. If you're not signed up for Friday Favorites, it's my weekly love letter to blog subscribers. And we have a whole lot of fun doing it, talking about all kinds of topics, not just food. So come on over and find me. Have a great day.